0: Revelation chapter 2, and I will read verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It is an absolute joy to be here. So I want to start by saying thank you for inviting us to come and be part of this weekend. My brother Steve and I, we have loved it. And to see what God is doing in this community, it's been so beautiful. So I came here around four years ago, and God was doing something stunning then, and he's doing something stunning now, but this is a new day. There is a new dawn, a new day, and there is new life breaking out all around. Can you perceive it? Can you sense it? This is a moment where you as a church stepping into something truly beautiful, and for us to witness it, be a part of it, it's been so special. So thank you so much for having us. I'm going to speak about discipleship in our cultural moment. And I want to start by saying, I know that this is an incredibly challenging time for discipleship. And I know that because I've got three kids. And three kids, they they have a way of humbling you in, in terms of the area of discipleship. So I'll give you an example of this. A few years ago, we as a family went to a Christian conference, it's called New Wine in the UK. 25,000 people descend on this campsite and spend a week worshipping, loads of teaching, loads of ministry, and we were camping as a church, and loads of other churches were camping around us, and this one afternoon, the weather was glorious, that never happens in the UK, right? But this one afternoon, the weather was glorious, and a water fight broke out. And all the kids got involved. They had their water pistols. There was laughter, joy. It started with the families of KXC. And then the other churches camping around us, they got involved. And and this water fight began to spread. And then one of the pastors from the churches around us, he got involved. But he took the water fight from here to here. He just took it to the next level. He picked up a bucket full of water and he walked around. My son wasn't aware of this. He found my son, he was around six, seven years old. He poured the whole thing over his head. My son was livid, like broke down in tears, said some things you're not gonna find in scripture. And <laughs> and he went running off um, to his tent where he was sobbing. I went after him, was like, it's okay, and we processed it, just made sure he was okay, and we went on with the day. The evening session was amazing. After the evening session, this local pastor came to me and he said, Pete, I want to say sorry, like, I think, I think I really hurt your son, I think he was really angry. And I was just trying to downplay it, I was like, honestly, it wasn't a big deal. I was lying, w- wasn't a big deal, like, m- my son was fine, he's like, no, I really think I, I did upset him, he was angry. and I was like, no, honestly, you know, he, he saw the funny side, he wasn't that angry. And then this guy said, no, 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 he wrote me a letter. <laughs> so, Pat panic levels were beginning to rise for me and he pulls out this letter and he hands it to me and I, I've, I've got some hopes that maybe it says like, dear sir, you, you did upset me, but my mum and dad have been teaching me about following the way of Jesus. <laughs> I've been listening to some of John Mark Comer's teaching about practising the way of Jesus and, and, and I've decided to follow the path of forgiveness and I forgive you, yours sincerely and then just assign it. Like, I knew that was unlikely, but you can dream as a parent, right? So I open up the letter, it's a short letter by the way, only four words, it said, I hope you die. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. I, I, I think he was perhaps quite angry then, yeah. You were right. I'm going to have a discipleship conversation with my my son. It, It was an awakening moment for me as a parent. I think, after the global pandemic we've been experiencing, there's been an awakening moment when it comes to the area of discipleship. So, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to Revelation 2 and we're going to walk through this passage? This is apocalyptic literature. That doesn't mean there's gonna be zombies, aliens, end of the world stuff. The word apocalypse, the Greek word which is translated revelation, perhaps a better translation is unveiling. Apocalyptic literature is the moment where God pulls back the curtain so that we can understand this cultural moment better. So the two tasks of apocalyptic literature, number one, to set the present in the light of the unseen realities of the future. The future's breaking in upon us by the Spirit of God. But there's a second task, which is to set the present in the light of the unseen realities of the present we begin to see this moment differently from heaven's perspective. And that's what we're gonna do as we unpack this passage. So a bit of context. Um, Jesus is, is speaking to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the fourth largest city of the Roman Empire, so you had Rome, the nerve center, you had Alexandria in North Africa, you had Antioch in Syria, and then you had Ephesus. So this is a letter to urban disciples. Now, Ephesus was known as a centre of consumerism, a major centre of finance, a major centre of business, but more than that, it was known as a centre of entertainment. It hosted the Pan-Ionian Games, which was the second biggest sporting event in the ancient world after the Olympics, and more than that, it was a centre of sexual idolatry. It was the home to the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, also known by the name to the Romans as Diana, the goddess of fertility, the embodiment of sexual lust. She had a nickname. It was the multi-breasted one. You can see a picture there of her. I don't know what happened to her fingers and her nose, but that's a statue of Artemis. And the temple was known for cult prostitution and sexual debauchery. So as we look at Ephesus, a centre of consumerism, a centre of entertainment, a centre of sexual idolatry, like does that sound familiar to some of the progressive cities in the west of our day? Like This is Jesus speaking into that context, the context of Ephesus, but he wants to speak into our context. So let's look at the church then, the story of the church in Ephesus, planted by Paul with the help of Priscilla and Aquila, And we know that Paul was driven out of the city. Um, Eventually, he was beheaded in Rome. He handed on the leadership of the church to his mentee, Timothy. We know that Timothy was eventually martyred as well. So the church was handed on to the apostle John. Here's a fun fact, by the way, that when John was pastoring the church in Ephesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was part of the congregation. Now imagine that, Mary on the front row, right? Imagine the carol services. Your mind went there, right? The carol services. She's front row, singing the carols. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Did you? Did you know that? Yeah. And Mary, did you know? That would have been unbelievable, right? But if you follow the story on, John refuses to bow the knee to the Emperor Domitian. He's exiled to the island of Patmos. This is a church that knew persecution inside out. A church that understood that discipleship that costs nothing is worth precisely that. Heavy persecution, and the church kept growing. Heavy persecution, and the church kept growing. So by the time you get to AD 96, around the time of this being written, Ephesus was the global centre of Christianity. Something beautiful stirring in the church there. And this letter has a structure. There's an opening encouragement and we can learn from the encouragement there. There is a pretty brutal challenge. We can learn from that. And then there's an invitation towards blessings to step into abundant life. So let's just read the opening bit again. Verse two onwards. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, there's three areas of encouragement then. Number one, Jesus is saying, you've held on to orthodoxy, like right belief. Right worship, and it's led to orthopraxy, good deeds. Right worship leading to good deeds. Listen to these words then, Acts chapter 20. This is the moment where Paul leaves Ephesus, driven out of the city, and there's a very emotional farewell. And Paul says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. These are the parting words of Paul. Like You need to be on your guard. So how can we be on our guard? Holding on to orthodoxy, the kind of orthodoxy that leads to orthopraxy. This is how we can be on our guard. This is a process of discernment. We need to understand that culture is a byproduct of our worship. Look at the root word of culture, cult, from the Latin verb meaning to worship. The idols that we worship begin to shape the surrounding culture. So, this would be my analysis of this cultural moment. Number one, we've embraced secular stories that have been masquerading as kingdom stories. Number two, hidden each of those stories are the idols of our age. Number three, those idols have broken our hearts. C.S. Lewis said, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. So the idols have broken our hearts and they've emptied the church of power. That would be my analysis of this cultural moment. So I want to compare the story of God, the biblical narrative, with the story of secularism. So this is what the story of God looks like. It's a journey from creation, that's Genesis 1 and 2, where we get a vision of human flourishing. We begin to understand the character and nature of God. And then sin enters the story and created order begins to unravel. Let's call that decreation. That's Genesis 3 through to Genesis 11. And then Genesis 12 is a hinge point. The story of Abraham, the formation of a nation that God wants to use the nation as a vehicle of healing, restoration and blessings being sent out to the ends of the earth. And the story of Israel is fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. The new creation is birthed. And how does the story end? It says Revelation 21, Revelation 22. It's not us ascending to some sort of disembodied bliss. It's God coming down to make his dwelling place with humanity. At that point, heaven and earth are reconciled, joined. God and humanity reconciled. Christ and the church married. In that moment, there's no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. Humanity fully alive as we were created to be in Eden where there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering, fully alive in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, in relationship with created order. That is our story. And the story you live in is the story you live out. And at the very centre of the story is God incarnate, the person of Jesus. Now, what happened during the Enlightenment is a number of thinkers said, well, we quite like the shape of the Judeo-Christian worldview. We quite like that there's a beginning. We quite like that there's an account of of the brokenness that surrounds us. And we quite like the linear view of time. Like there's a progression towards this utopian vision of, of perfection. We like all of that stuff. We just don't want God to be the centre of the story. So, we're going to push God to one side, and we want to put the rational, autonomous self at the center of the story. But notice the language that's used like the Dark Ages and the Enlightenment. Like, this is language from the Gospels. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Like, those walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. Think of the language of Renaissance, French word meaning rebirth. That's John chapter three, Jesus talking with Nicodemus. Like if you want to be born again and experience the new life of the age to come, it has to come by the spirit. And the Enlightenment think is, well, we want a rebirth, but we don't want it to be by the spirit. We want it to be by our own human endeavours. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. Now, can you see how the shape of the story looks familiar? I would say some of the secular remedies of our age. It's essentially secularism with different faces. And of a lot of the younger generation, as they hear some of these remedies, they think, "God, that looks Christian and it sounds Christian. Here's the litmus test. If Christ isn't the centre of the story, it's not Christian. If the cross isn't the centre of the story, it is not Christian. It's secularism masquerading as the kingdom of God. So listen to these words, the words of Jesus. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. If you embrace these stories, you embrace the idols that are smuggled into the stories. And these idols will break the hearts of their worshippers and empty the church of power. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Like that is happening right now in Portland, in London, in many of these cities. We need to wake up We need to encourage the next generation to hold on to orthodoxy. Right belief, right worship to discern what are the secular stories that look Christian, sound Christian, but they aren't Christian because Christ isn't the centre of the story. Here's the second encouragement. Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says, you've pursued holiness and it's a holiness that's led to justice. There's an intolerance of wickedness, and there's a deep compassion in caring for the poor. There's an amazing passage. This is Acts 19, and the backdrop to the passage is is Paul's ministering again in Ephesus and ministering in such power, like signs and wonders breaking out everywhere. So much so that people were bringing their handkerchiefs, trying to get their handkerchiefs to touch Paul, and and then take the handkerchiefs to the sick, lay the handkerchiefs on the sick, and the sick were getting well. And rumours began to spread around the city. Have you heard about Paul? And have you heard about these healings? And have you heard about the power of the gospel and the the power of the spirit of God? Like These rumours were spreading across the city. This is verse 17 of chapter 19. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Like That's a holiness movement, by the way. When the Spirit of God is poured out and people are like, God is near, and I wanna get right with him. Give me clean hands and a pure heart. I wanna ascend the hill of the Lord. There was a holiness movement stirring in the place. It says a numberhood practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. A public demonstration of holiness so that the city could see what the Spirit was doing in drawing people to repentance. The equivalent would be like thousands gathering in Portland to burn their mobile phones. I don't like what this is doing to my imagination, like what TikTok is doing to my imagination and and the addictions, it's not good for me and it's destroying my walk with Jesus, my intimacy with Jesus, I'm just gonna burn my phone. right? I can see anxiety spreading across the room, like, but you wouldn't ask us to do that. I mean, that, that, that wouldn't, you know, I need, I need my phone, I, I need my phone, right? That was happening in Ephesus. Everyone was talking about it. This pursuit of holiness. The church in Ephesus were known for their sexual purity in a city known for its sexual lust, and they were known for their compassion, a holiness that led to justice. There was a practice in Ephesus, called exposing. And what would often happen is is when a baby was born, the father would look upon the baby, and if the father didn't like what he saw, if there was a, a blemish, a disability, an imperfection, he could say, take the baby away. And the baby would be taken outside the city and thrown onto a hillside. And the baby would be left to die, exposed, hence the name exposing, exposed to the elements. The babies would often die of hypothermia, or be attacked by wild animals, or maybe picked up by slave traders, right? This was known throughout the city. Do you know what the people of God were doing? They were leaving the city, going to the hillsides to collect the babies. And when they collected the babies, they adopted them, not to be slaves or servants in their household, but to be sons and daughters, like that kind of countercultural living, again, the people in the city were talking about it. Have you heard about the people of God following the way? It is extraordinary. there is a holiness present, but it's leading towards social justice, kingdom justice. And we live in a context where people are really passionate about social justice, but there is a disregard for personal holiness. John Mark Homer talks about this in his recent book, doesn't he that? at the very height of the Me Too campaign, and like amazing to see what that campaign was doing in terms of exposing sexual harassment, but at the height of, the compa- of that campaign, um, the fastest-selling book, the best-selling book, was Fifty Shades of Grey. What that tells you is like everyone wants justice out in the world, but when it comes to personal holiness, far less interested in that. But we know, don't we, that the wildfires of injustice in the surrounding culture, they start as sparks of impurity in the human heart. If you want to take seriously social justice in the world, yes, we need to put out those flames. But we need to address the sparks hidden in our hearts, the sparks of lust and anger and selfish ambition. We need movements of holiness and we need movements of justice. And that was what was beautiful about the church in Ephesus. There was both. Third encouragement, Jesus says I I love your passion. You've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name. The word passion from the Latin verb passio meaning to suffer When you say you're passionate about something, that basically means you're willing to suffer for the cause. One of the most beautiful things of this last weekend is seeing the passion in this room for the presence of God. A hunger for the presence of God. This would be then a summary of the church in Ephesus. They're passionate about the kingdom. Like that, that's an amazing encouragement as Jesus begins to pull back the curtain, and said, this is what I love about what's happening in, in your community. You are passionate about the kingdom. There's an orthodoxy leading towards orthopraxis. There's a, there's a holiness that's leading towards justice and there is passion for the kingdom. And yet there comes a challenge. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Key word here, forsaken. Greek word meaning to leave behind, to leave behind. I said that when John was pastoring the church in Ephesus, Mary um, was in the congregation. I bet the church in Ephesus knew a lot of the stories, not just of the life of Jesus and his ministry, but maybe the toddler years, like maybe the teenage years. That would be fascinating, right? The teenage years of Jesus. Like maybe Mary had communicated some of the stories. I bet they knew this story told in Luke chapter 2. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Wow, parenting fail, right? (laughs) Like, I've had some lows during the pandemic in terms of parenting fails, Like, I've lost patience with my kids, like, but I've not lost them for a day. Half a day here and there, never a full day. Like, never a full day. Like, this is a parenting fail moment. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, like three days, losing your 12-year-old child, that's remarkable. They found him in the temple, courts. course. Key verse, thinking he was in their company, just kept on walking, Just presumed he was in our company. If you've ever had moments during the last two years of the pandemic where you've got your head down, you're in survival mode, you, you just keep on walking, you keep on walking and then you have one of these awakening moments of discipleship and you're like, I just presumed Jesus was in my company But now I'm waking up to the realization that I haven't really sensed his presence. Not really experiencing any intimacy with him. Like, I I think I must have left him behind. Like, what is our priority as the people of God? It's to host the presence of God, to walk closely with God. Jesus said, This is the first and greatest commandment. Like, this is the highest principle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the priority, to walk closely with Jesus, to experience his love and love in return. This is why Augustine summarised his ethical framework with the statement, love God and do what you like, which sounds incredibly appealing, right? But this is the actual translation, love God and do whatever you please for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Like when you love God, and when you are walking closely with Him, every area in your life you're wanting to submit to His lordship, you want to align every area with His purposes. This would be the summary. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, if you seek first the kingdom of God, what do you get? Now it says, "You get the kingdom. Like seek and you will find. Love God above all else. You're gonna experience the kingdom of God breaking in in your life. But we also know this to be true, that misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. Right? So when your desires are pointed in a slightly different direction, we move in the direction of our desires. Only needs to be off a slight bit and you end up in a whole world of pain. And for the church in Ephesus, Basically it was activity that was getting in the way. They were doing all of the activity of the kingdom but they would left the king behind. Like why do we get hyperactive? And the answer is, is we wanna be really fruitful. Like if I'm driven, if I'm productive, then I'm gonna be really fruitful. That's the mindset of a generation. But what does hyperactivity actually lead to? It isn't fruitfulness and abundance. It's exhaustion. And we live in cities where people feel chronically exhausted and mentally drained. They thought it would lead to fruitfulness, but it's led to fatigue and exhaustion. Like We we idolise productivity. Like when we catch up with friends, how are you doing? What's the standard answer? I know in London, I'm incredibly busy. When you do diaries to hang out, yeah, let's hang out. January 25, let's, let's make it happen, let's make it happen. When we review the day, how was your day? Good, productive day, thank you. It's been a very productive day. Or like, not a great day. I feel I've been unproductive today. We measure everything through the lens of productivity and it's led to deep exhaustion and fatigue. What's the remedy? Not hyperactivity, but abiding. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Being unproductive in the presence of God is the pathway towards fruitfulness. So this is the message to the church in Ephesus. Activity, and some of it good, but this hyperactivity has robbed you of intimacy. Intimacy. A few years ago, I went on sabbatical. I knew I was drained. I knew I really needed a rest. It was like 10 years of hard work, planting a church in central London, growing the church in central London, constantly pushing, and there was a drivenness that wasn't healthy, and then it was like three months of rest. As I began to rest, things got worse, not better. As everything came to a standstill, Do you know what the realisation was? I think I left Jesus behind. I feel like my walk with Jesus is marked out by duty and not much joy, and I, I don't really sense his nearness much right now. It's like, oh my goodness, I just kept walking. I just presumed he was in my company. It was halfway through the sabbatical where I kind of had a breakdown moment, which was the breakthrough moment of like, oh God, I I repent. I was was going after hyperactivity, thinking it would lead to fruitfulness in terms of like church and, and the growth of the church and the health of the church. And I realized I should have been abiding and walking with you and prioritizing intimacy. How many of us make that mistake? So this is the summary of the church in Ephesus. Passionate about the kingdom, but not really passionate about the king. And we might summarize that as they've pursued the kingdom without the king. And that's secularism, by the way. Do you remember the shape of the Enlightenment thinking? kind of looks Christian. It kind of sounds Christian at times, but Christ isn't the centre of the story. Tom Holland, in his recent book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, he describes secularism as godless Christianity. The Judeo-Christian worldview without God. Christless Christianity And because we've embraced these secular remedies and these secular stories in the church, we end up looking like the world. Rather than transforming the world, the world has started to transform the church and it's emptied the church of power. This is what Daryl Johnson says in his commentary on this letter. He says, where simple love for Jesus goes, so does the light. And he's commentating on this verse. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's judgment right there. But when we hear words of judgment, some of us panic and have this idea of a, a distant deity, an angry father with a kind of smite button, right? But that's not how judgment works. The primary form of judgment in the New Testament is handing people over to their desires like if, if you make those decisions, you've got to live with the fruit of those decisions. This is Romans 1, therefore God gave them over. Paradini, the Greek word, handed them over. If you embrace the secular stories, where God isn't front and centre, you begin to walk away from God. And when you walk away from God, the source of life, you begin to embrace death and the light begins to go out. We can see this in so many parts of the Western church where the lights are beginning to go out. This should be an awakening moment when it comes to our discipleship. What's the invitation then? The invitation, consider how far you've fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. Recognise, repent and then repeat. Wake up, recognise, Metanoia, turn around, change your thinking, and then do what you did at first. What did we do at first when we fell in love with Jesus? And the answer is we prioritized his presence. That's what you do when you fall in love, when you're overwhelmed. You just prioritize time in their presence. When I met B, when we fell in love, you know, in the journey towards engagement before we, you know, got married, we would spend all day together. And then late at night, I would drive home, and I'd call her in the car, just checking you're all right. It's been a minute or two since I've been in your presence. Just want to make sure you're all right. I'd get home, you know, go to bed and just call her and say goodnight, just checking you're all right because it's been two minutes since we've chatted. Um, and then this really embarrassing moment, and I'm ashamed of this kind of behaviour, but it, it is what took place. Be like, You put the phone down. I'm not putting the phone down. You put the phone. I, I'm not putting the phone down. I look back with kind of shame I'm like just put the phone down. You've spent all day together, right? But that's what happens when you're in love. You just want to be with each other all the time. We need to recognize, we need to turn around and do what we did at first, which is to prioritize the presence because it's the intimacy that leads to fruitfulness. Yes, fruitfulness in terms of character. But fruitfulness in terms of signs and wonders of the kingdom of God, right? These movements of signs and wonders throughout church history present today, they are built on intimacy. They're the overflow of people experiencing the presence of God, falling in love with God, and the overflow is fruitfulness. That's what's happening in this place. There is a hunger for worship at Bridgetown. It is beautiful signs and wonders will begin to flow because there is a deep desire in this church to host the presence of God, to be lost in wonder, love and praise. It's happening. God is doing a new thing. It's springing up right now. Can you perceive it? It's happening. And I really believe the signs and wonders, they're gonna begin to flow. They have an overflow of intimacy with the Father. And then we land with this blessing. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, who stands firm, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This tree that was present in Eden... And this tree that's present in the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, Jesus says, if you stand firm, pursue intimacy, you're gonna feast from that tree and it will bring you abundant life. Let me close with a, a story. And it is the story of John, the one who's penning this letter. Throughout his gospel account, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, Right? In other words, he he knew that his truest identity was that he was God's beloved. So he took on this term, I'm I'm the one whom Jesus loves. And there's this beautiful moment at the Last Supper and it is a, a moment of incredible intimacy as John lays his head on the breast of Jesus. Like incredible intimacy. Now what follows that moment is the journey to the cross. Where all the disciples fall away. So Judas betrays Jesus. And Peter disowns Jesus. One by one they fall away. One disciple is left, right, at the cross with the women. Here's the principle. The first one leaning is the last one standing. It's the first one leaning that's the last one standing. It's the disciple that prioritised intimacy. I'm the one that he loves. That's who I am. And all I really want to do is draw close to his heart where I can feel his affection because his affection towards me is transformative. And from that place, I'm going to live courageously and I'm going to take my stand. The first one leaning is the last one standing. And I want to say it again to you as a church, this is stirring in this place a hunger for the presence of God, abundance will follow. The first one leaning is the last one standing.